welcome. Life Before Medicine begins right now. We are continuing with part two of my conversation with Marcus. This is a story of resilience. This is a story that is taking its own direction. We talked for an hour. We took a break. We're going to do as long as it takes for us to understand this whole story from start to finish. Marcus, thank you for making the time to come back. I appreciate you. Um, when we stopped talking, when we took our break, you had um, just undergone, correct me if I'm wrong, just undergone surgery to, and you, for the uh, Crohn's disease and you got an ileostomy and you're just in the, starting to deal with the realities of that. And um, so maybe, uh, if you would, just pick up where you left off, and let's go ahead and uh, continue with your story, please. Um, so getting this elostomy, you have to understand that three days prior to this elostomy, I thought that my life was going in the right direction. So because... You, as I had told you guys earlier, I hadn't been taking any medicine for almost a year for my Crohn's. So I thought that I had it under control because of my new diet, because of all the holistic things that I had introduced to my life. So this is a complete um, shock, um, whirlwind, um, alternate reality, I guess, so to speak. And, um, while I'm recovering, I had um, finally got moved to a regular room because they thought I was doing good. But as I said, my stomach was still extended. Um, about three hours of being in that new room, um, I get really, really sick. And um, they find out I have an infection in my stomach. Um and so for the next three days, I am just in honestly complete agony. Um, um, I, I experienced things in that hospital room that I never have experienced, things that I still struggle to talk about. Um, There were definitely there was definitely a moment in that hospital room and bed that I did not feel like I was going to make it out of that hospital room, um, because I was sick and I had just had my stomach cut open. So like those two things together don't really mix, and I'm not eating. Um, I can't eat. Um, so I. To further the story along, I'm as I'm leaving the hospital, I'm, I go into the hospital at about 215 pounds. I leave the hospital at about 260, 270 pounds. So already, like, that was going to be a completely different world for me. But before I leave the hospital, like, I'm almost begging my mom, my support system, like, I don't need to go home. Like I knew like going home was going to be 
too much almost uh, instantly just like returning to my reality that was no longer my reality. Like I, I was trying to get myself in the Mayo Clinic. Uh, we tried Cleveland Clinic. Um, I was just trying to get somewhere where they had more answers because ultimately they didn't really know why this had happened. Um, <laughs> like I was healthy. So I, I was very, um, unsettled in that thought of the fact that, um, we didn't really know why it had happened. We just knew it had happened and they had to deal with it and I didn't want it to happen again. So not at the time I'm not knowing, but I'm just overthinking and I'm basically telling myself I'm, I'm, I'm convincing myself that I'm now sick because this whole time throughout my life, you couldn't tell me I was sick. Like, yeah, I know I had Crohn's. Yeah. Like my back was hurt, but like, I would never accept that I was sick. But in these moments, I finally started to convince myself that I was sick and that for anyone out there, um, that is probably some one of the work like accepting is 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 okay and great, but that may be one of the worst things you can do as a human is to convince yourself you're sick because your body is always trying to repair itself. Yeah, you, know, you start telling. I understand that, but I I want to challenge you just for a second because I'm interested to know your response to this observation. Going back to the original back injury when you were 11 and your desire to continue to play sports, which was at least supported by your father, it seems to me that there were issues there that may have include denial, an unwillingness to accept the medical reality that you had an injury that should have precluded you from playing sports any further, and or sometimes parents live vicariously through their children, and you know that there's something they wanted to accomplish in life, and but if they could see their children accomplish that thing, that can provide some satisfaction. Um, you getting through all the back surgeries and dealing with Crohn's, and then through the bowel surgery that resulted in the ileostomy, and then you finally, and this is, these are your words, convinced myself I was sick. Even then, there was a resistance to accepting the medical realities of your health conditions. Where does that come from? Do you, does that sound like I'm on target? Does that sound wrong? What do you think about well, this? Very much on target. Um, Denial for sure as a kid, like, but to me as a child, it wasn't denial, it was resilience. It was right. You gotta, I mean, you're 11 years old, you don't, you know, in my opinion, you don't get it, you don't get an opinion when you're 11 years old, right? And I'm and I an athlete, so the only thing I really know my whole life, like, I don't know. Like I know school, I know church, and I know sports. So through all three of those things, you have to be very resilient when it comes to like your faith, when it comes to getting a good grade, especially in my household at that point in time, when it came to sports, like 
there was no quit in me. Like any sense of that word was like completely not even in my vocabulary. Like when I was programmed, I was like, how was how were you programmed? Tell me about that. How did that happen? Tell me about the programming. So like my, and this is one thing I can honestly say, like, it was never like my parents made me or my brother, like care about our like um, physical appearance or our bodies or like working out or getting stronger. Like that is just something that we genuinely got into so young and we kind of, and, and it's kind of toxic how we got into it when, when now that I'm older and I think about it, because like we got into it as a self-defense mechanism. Like, we're we're thinking like as 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 little black boys we're thinking like there's gonna come a day where like we're gonna have to be strong enough we're gonna like if we get put in a situation with the police and they decide that they want to beat us well we have to be strong enough to survive that this is but and and I'm because it, it it's kind of it's kind of in an age eleven you were aware of this. Yes. Yes, sir. And it's kind of weird because I'm, I'm the same person today. Like, luckily, like, thank God I'm growing, I'm maturing, but in those aspects, I'm the same person. And, uh, like my brother was just always really big on like self-defense and like, just like not even just self-defense though, but like when to defend and like when, like how to never have to defend by showing respect. So like my brother was te- my brother's like I think a year and a half older than me but like if you ask me like my brother's like my second dad so like and he's literally only a year and a half older than me and um he was just always teaching me at a very very young age discipline but like discipline came so different for me in my head because like I can honestly say like as a kid in school like I was very respectful. I was very like, I was a good kid until I got put in a position to not be a good kid. And like, I I dealt with a lot of racism while, when I was in, like as a, as a young kid in school, I dealt with a lot of racism. I had to move schools. Um, I, so I'm from, I'm from Southern Kentucky. So like, facing these realities, my brother was literally teaching me how to, how to be a man in the world, basically. Like, and I was learning this so young. So like me and my brother, we were getting up at five in the morning, working out. Like my mom would take me to the basketball gym at six in the morning. As soon as they opened, drop me off and I'd be there all day. Like, these are things that I was programming myself to do. These are things that my brother was instilling in me. And my brother would create these crazy workouts and just like, it was never about like, it was never just about like, I, I don't know. It's, it's crazy because like back then we weren't so worried about wellness as I am now. And uh, it was more so about like self-defense and like, are you strong enough? Like, so when you like, were a very young child, it sounds like you had a very clear sense that the world is a threatening place and I need to learn how to protect myself. Because of your race, you felt threatened and the 
necessity to be as physically strong and as mentally strong as possible because as you said there will come a time there will be a, there will be a day when i need to survive an event and it, does that sound right to you i've never thought about it like that but yes sir and to give you just a little bit more of my like background and upbringing i like grew up very very different than a lot of like kids in my millennium or like my uh, Gen Z or whatever, because my aunt, which was my father's aunt, which was his father's aunt, she kind of raised me to the time I was like eight years old because my parents both worked a uh, factory jobs um, until my mom went back to school. And uh, my mom is a whole other story. She's a superhero herself, but uh, my aunt kind of like raised me. I stayed with her pretty much every day. And she was, 82 when I was born. She died in 96. So she was born in 1913. Her mother was a slave. Her father was a slave in Russellville, Kentucky. So I literally grew up in a house that was directly in front of the house that her mother and father lived in. But the special thing about her and this whole situation is the people who own my family, when they they didn't have children. So when they passed away, they left their farm to my aunt. So, and um, through this, <laughs> I, I knew the world was a threatening place because there was this, this little black woman who had a lot. And um, I remember at like seven years old, um, they came and took like, some land from her and like they presented the papers like who, they brought the sheriffs and it was like who is, who young, is they like, who is they who took the land from her the the city um i guess so to speak but they were somebody else had basically bought it but it wasn't ever for sale i see um and uh so i, I i'm young but i'm noticing that like one, like, she's hurt, and, like, she is literally the best human being I've ever met still to this day. Um, I'm knowing how hard her and my uncle work. I'm know like, I'm knowing all these things, but, like, I'm young, so, like, processing it is still, like, well, whatever is whatever, you know, but, like, at the same time, like, at seven years old, I began, <laughs> it's so weird, but um, at seven years old, I began to, like, care about ownership. Like, and so like, even now, like it's so, it's so bad, but like I've had four cars and I've bought every single one of them. And like, now I'm older, I'm, I'm growing, I'm learning that that probably wasn't the, the best thing to do. But at the same time, now I own things and I'm 24 years old. So like, you know, there is a balance there. And, uh, but I learned that so young because of the threatening things that were happening directly to in front of me and to me and um I just um and she never and that's like the most beautiful thing about her is like she wasn't she never downplayed the people who done her wrong and like she never like you know talked bad about it she never like she you know like obviously she's upset but like she wasn't trying to change my opinion on what I what I was going to think the world was right. and it seems like pushing through 
is a family value of yours that goes yes. back generations. This yes. attitude that you will push through no matter what you're dealt. Let me tell you that I played sports as a child and it was never considered for even a brief moment that I would ever play professional sports. That wasn't a thing. It wasn't a thing. And if I had been injured in the course of playing sports, I can guarantee that I would not have continued to play sports. That I wouldn't have made myself vulnerable to further injury and disability for the sake of playing sports. Do you think there's a cultural difference here? And I'm not just talking about your family, but this idea that, and, and you mentioned, this was my way out. You said, this is my way to a free education and free housing. Talk to me about the ideas that young black men growing up where you grew up had about ways to get out. And, I, and by that, I think you mean out of poverty and out of uh, a, life, um, a lifestyle um, that um, maybe um, was it's not okay. what you wanted so, it to be. Generational wealth. By that, I mean, how can I make sure my mom has insurance and isn't working? How can I make sure my dad has insurance and isn't working? And like, this is literally what I'm, I'm telling you. Like, by the time I'm 11 years old, I'm thinking about these things. Like, mm-hmm. but you're still, you're still thinking athlete. That's the way I can get out. You're not thinking doctor, yeah, lawyer, so, you know, I want to kind of dive into that a little bit with my generation in general, because there is, I think there's a cultural difference within generations. And, you know, like as a young black boy, I told you how my brother was instilling self-defense and getting strong in me, but it, it's crazy because we learned this from prison documentaries. And the only thing that a young black boy has to look up to is an athlete, a rapper, or somebody who has done something that landed them in prison, but maybe it was for the right cause. We don't, yes, like there are, there are, now they are doctors. Now we are starting to see more, but you got to understand I'm born in 1997. I'm not that old, but like still at that point in time, that's the eighties coming to the, to real life. So like, um, me and my friends, we had this, this, this conversation. Um, I have a lot of friends there like, um, that are in like fraternities and, uh, I actually used to live in, um, I used to live with like a bunch of my fraternity friends in a house and like, you know, um, I'm from Kentucky. So, you know, just the whole politics and everything can get very awkward, very fast, but um, we would have conversations. And one day I realized that to them, Donald Trump was Martin Luther King. He was Malcolm X. Because who, like, who else do they have to look up to? And, like, what are they looking up to? And, like, these are people who, like, Donald Trump, before he ever became the president, he was a business mogul that everybody in America wanted to be like, to some extent. He was funny. He was entertainment. He was money. He was a good time. Like, he was all of these positive things to a certain extent. 
So I had to realize and like kind of logicalize it in my own head that like maybe what I had been looking up to for my whole life wasn't right. And don't get me wrong, like to the I I think that LeBron James is one of the best human beings to ever live. Like, how do you go that long being a great athlete and never a scandal comes out on your name? Because you know people are looking for him. So he has to be one of the best people in the world. But I'm not 6'8". I'm not 260 pounds. And, like, yeah, if I wouldn't have hurt my back, maybe I'd be three inches taller. (laughs) But I'm still not LeBron James. That's a very, 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 very once-in-a-lifetime talent that they will probably take his body, his bones, and research it for the rest of human eternity. And and maybe, maybe, maybe they'll take my bones and do the same thing. Maybe, maybe because of what I've been through, maybe because of the amount that my body has been able to get through, they maybe they want to test what it actually is inside of me that led that made me be able to do that. However, you were so right about the like at at such a young age, I was just denial, 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 because it came to a point to where like, it's so, it's so funny to talk about this now, but I quit football in high school. I like, I realized like, like straight up, like either my brain or my hands are going to make me more money than like my feet ever will at this point. So I quit football. Um, we had just got a new coach. The culture was changing. I had just moved to that school the year prior and played the football season. And so it, this next year for me was supposed to be really big. And this is the same year I get diagnosed with Crohn's disease. So that summer I ended up quitting football and uh, focused on my health, focused on um, making money. Um, I got a job. Like that was more so where my head was turning at that point because I started to realize like, oh my God, like even my parents need money. So like when I become an adult, I'm going to like, like, yeah, my, I'm saying my parents have jobs. My parents are financially stable, but even them, they need money. So like, what am I going to do? So that became more so my thought process. Well, we get back into school and literally the first day of school, my coach calls me over to intercom to his office and um, I go. And because I had actually got offered two, um, two scholarships that sophomore, my sophomore year, I got two small schools, two Christian schools in Kentucky. So he presented those to me and he's like, and then, um, he was, he had been in the NFL. He had coached for um, Cincinnati. He had coached in the NFL. Uh, he's really revered. And so he had some friends, and he was, like, basically telling me, like, you don't have to play this season at all. You can work out with us. You can come to every game, be on the team. But when the summer comes, like, I'm, I'm going to send you to these camps. I'm going to send you to these college camps. So, like, we can basically get you healthy enough for your senior year and get you healthy enough to go play college football. So he has a friend at Cincinnati. Cincinnati is literally where I've always wanted to play football. And 
he's telling he's telling me like as a sophomore like or going to well, just now junior he's telling me we will have a spot for you rather you have the red shirt rather you have to walk on like your times are already meeting the standard so you don't have to worry about proving anything on this level that you have improved already basically and so, and so okay so you're still being encouraged by mentors you had maybe still being encouraged by your father and yourself to achieve oh, some success as much actually because like i'm if you want me to be honest like i'm scared now like not scared to get hit in my back mess up like crohn's created so many different fears for me if that makes sense so like now it's like the first time I ever had a Crohn's flare up, blood came out of the back. Right. I don't right. have a football field or. So I sometimes fear reflects wisdom. And sometimes fear reflects a, an irrational anxiety about something that can hold you back. Uh, the opposite of wisdom. So it sounds like at this point you had acquired some wise fear that was finally going to be self-preserving. Now, you ended up having uh, a major Crohn's surgery and getting this ileostomy. You're done with high school now. You've accepted that you're not going to be a professional football player. Um, and, and so I'd like to pick up the story again. I think we created some important context in the last 15 minutes. I want to continue the story again, especially... Um, getting into the events of a hospitalization that took place when you were having trouble with your ostomy um, yeah. and, and hear about what happened there. So um, I'm actually going to give, <laughs> I'm actually going to tell a story that uh, I don't really tell. Um, I didn't even tell it to you, but um, you know, I, as we were continuing this, I told you how I basically was begging my family to not let me come home. I knew I wasn't okay. I knew in the hospital mentally, after you got your ileostomy. They put me in like a, a mental type of thing, a rehabilitation type of thing, um, extended hospitalization to figure out what's going on. I just know I needed to be with medical professionals. And mind you, um, I went from living alone to now I have to move back in with my parents. Um, both of my parents have full-time jobs. Um, there's no one else. So um, I have a brother and a sister, but they both have families. So um, I get back home. That first night is so chaotic and um, like traumatizingly chaotic. And my ostomy, as you were saying, high output. <laughs> I had been in the hospital barely eating. So I come home, I have my first real meal. I go to sleep. I wake up and my ostomy has shot across the room, literally. And so this is my new reality. And I'm at home. All of this is too much. So through that next week, like, um, 
um, like Suncrest um, tuna packages. Um, if you know what that is, mm-hmm. I'm eating that like high in protein, very easy. I don't have to like walk down the steps, you know, it's like something I can do. So I'm eating that. And, um, my parents are both working. They're, they're back to their regular lives. Um, I probably had some people I could have called and asked for help now that I'm <laughs> more mature and, uh, I'll accept help. But at the time, I don't want to be a burden to anybody because like all I'm trying to do is get strong enough to be able to do everything for myself. again. Of course. So I'm not trying to call in outside sources to help me, if that makes sense. So my parents, they're, they're back to work. They are leaving every day, getting home about 6 p.m., 7 p.m. And uh, I go a few days where, like, I'm like, basically – I need to eat more, but like, I'm not trying to bother my parents. They're at work, not trying to bother anybody else. I can't get down the steps because I still have an incision. Mentally, I am in warfare. Like literally, um, I'm battling myself. In my head, I'm battling the spirit world because why is this happening? Like, don't get me wrong. Like I have faith and I'm very, very much like, strong in my faith and I stand in it, but even I was questioning, why is this happening to me? I'm a kid. So like I'm going through so much and um, it gets to the point to where like I lash out one night, mind you, me lashing out is not supposed to be much because I'm still very much not in any condition to be even physically active. So I end up like, um, well, not even lashing out, actually. I just leave. I walk. Um, I decide that I'm going to walk. But I I don't know if it was the fact that I was on a lot of medication. I don't know if it was the fact that mentally I just was so unstable. But I, I start walking. It's raining. And before I know it, like, I'm probably, like, seven, eight miles away from my house. And I am barely eating. Like I am very weak. I have an incision. It's raining. I pass out. This is, this is, oh man. Um, I wake up and my phone's dead. I'm freaking out now, but what am I going to do? Like, so I walk to the closest place that I know of, which is my friend's house. And Luckily, like I throw a rock at his window and he comes out, he grabs me, he he holds me, hugs me. He's crying. I'm crying. He's like, bro, I've never seen you look like this. And mind you, like this is one of my best friends, but he hasn't seen me since I got home from the hospital. So he doesn't know that I've lost all of this weight. He doesn't know that I'm not, I'm weak. He doesn't, you know, so this is his first time accepting this too, but in the moments that he's accepting it, I'm finally wrapping my mind around the fact that I am not capable of what I just done. And why am I doing this to myself? I'm only going to make this worse. So, but it took, I had like, he was crying. I was crying. He literally begged me to never do it again. He's like, bro, like, like if you like need to talk, like, you know, I will come get you like whatever. Like, so at this point, like I know, 
at this point, I know that I am not mentally okay. And um, a few that two uh, like a few days later, um, me and my dad we get into it really bad, uh, not even physically, verbally, and just like now, like he he calls the this is I, I'm telling this story because it needs to be told, and because there are so many disabled people who go through these type of things that literally just need help. They need medical help. They don't need to be imprisoned. They don't need to be thrown away or homeless. Like these people need help. So I I will tell this story for, for them more so than myself, but um, he calls the police. I have nowhere else to go. So I just, I refuse to leave. Um, there becomes a physical altercation with the police in, in my house. And <laughs> I'm a week out of the hospital at gunpoint right outside of my bedroom. I look down and my elosomy back has been knocked off and they're telling me to get on the ground. And in this moment, I'm like, do I want to lay in feces or die? And I tell them, you going at this point, I'm trying to get them to kill me. I'm, I want to die. And this cop, he just, he's talking to me, talking to me. He's like, please, just, he's like, you don't have to get on the ground. Please put your hands behind your back. And the last thing he wants to do is take me to jail. So he takes me to the hospital. Like there was one cop that like saw that clearly I wasn't a criminal and I was mentally unstable. Like he's asking us to kill him. That's not normal guys. Like, but as a black man, that is normal. Right. But the, but the fact of the matter is my people, black, black people as a whole, we have never been the oppression. We have never been the aggressor. And in history's time, we don't even defend ourselves. We don't, like, there was a whole period to where we were being ruled by a couple guys on a farm. So, like, that that has to start playing a bigger part in the reality of how people judge situations, especially police. I totally so, agree. And I will tell you, I don't know you. I don't even recognize you. And I think I speak for a very large portion of the population, elites of the white population, because what we see is the final event, the final event where somebody is choosing to be non-compliant with the police and ends up getting killed. That's crazy. That's irrational. That's a crazy person. What we don't see is this long-standing culture of self-reliance, inability to seek help, accept help, leverage a social network, the need to push through no matter what, relying on your physicality, your ability to protect yourself for when that day comes. We don't see you know, 
we see, uh, you know, the, the moment of 1159, but we don't see the time that led up to that final moment. We don't recognize you. We don't know you. This is the problem. And these people get dehumanized. And disabled people in America become dis- dehumanized once they're disabled. And so that leads to, um, well, I'll, I'll, I'll continue that for a second because um, the cop, he takes me to the hospital and he says, he needs to be admitted. They say, he's cleared. This is the hospital now telling him, I'm cleared. He's like, no, he's not. I'm telling you guys what just happened. Even if he says he's okay, I am telling you he is not. Mentally, he is not okay. He does not need to be at home. He does not need to be in jail. He needs to be with you guys. They're saying no. So he literally apologizes to me almost the whole way to the jail as he takes me to jail. And a week out of the hospital with a new elostomy bag, um, I end up on a jailhouse floor. And uh, it's so crazy because uh, as soon as I got in there, um, I lifted my shirt up to, like, untuck my shirt. And one of the guys in the cell seen it and said, uh, man, uh, are you okay? <laughs> it was so weird because, you know, like, you know, when you get to jail, the last thing you're thinking is anybody's going to care about you. And he's like, are you okay? And, like, it, I'm still taped up. So he can tell that, like, you just had that. Like, this, is, this isn't something you – so he ends up – he bleaches the whole cell for me. And, like, um, and they, like, basically make sure I'm okay until I get out of there. And uh, it was so – it was such a, a flip because my family is basically kicking me out. And these people are asking me if I'm okay. And in th- these moments, that's why I'm telling this story because I had I started humanizing myself again. Um, I wasn't what I had just went through, and I was so down in this misery and so down, like in this hole that I had I hadn't just dug it myself, you know, like. I couldn't control what happened to me, but at the same time, I wasn't allowing myself to even try to like make a way out. So I started to accept that I was human again and that everything I had saw in the hospital, like, because like I said, I was on a lot of different medications, like, and everything I experienced in the hospital, everything I saw, everything that I went through, um, it wasn't fake, but it also wasn't going to shape the rest of my life. And so um, I move out. I get, I'm living in my own apartment, <laughs> but there's a problem. I can't work. I still can't drive. I haven't been cleared to do that. I'm on all types of medicine. Um, and I'm, I'm not on disability at this point in time. I'm still fighting for disability. I have a lawyer, um, but I'm still fighting for disability at this point in time. And um, so eventually about a month into living in that apartment, I do get put on disability. And uh, I just want to say for like, because 
I would can like I I don't like even like labeling like my political views at all. But um, I I agree with the I agree with the idea that um we should govern ourselves as much as possible. Of course, and you do whatever that is to people. But um, for all the people who like you know down down people who are like on disability or on food stamps or like in that world they don't understand that these people are getting nothing and they don't understand that like yes like you can question where your tax money is going but like helping your neighbor is it i promise you out of all the things that your tax money is doing that is probably one of the best things it is doing Totally agree. So even I used to like, because like I said, I grew up in Southern Kentucky. I used to have this idea and I, both of my parents have worked my whole life. So I almost had this idea built around, I was ashamed to be on disability. I was ashamed to receive food stamps. I was ashamed of this lifestyle that I am now living every single day and I'm getting nothing. I'm, I'm 21 years old. I'm getting $500 a month. I'm getting $118 in food stamps. Um, that's not enough to pay my rent that I'm living in my apartment that I'm living in, you know? So what do I do now? Who am I now? And I still don't know. Um, I still don't know, but um, I know a lot more now. But uh, back then, I'm like, who am I? Like, what am I supposed to do? I can't work. I can't do this. I can't do this. And then the trick, like the trick is they think you're going to get the bright idea to commit crimes to make money. And then you become a part of the prison system. So now they're making money off of you instead of you getting money from them. And like, I just kind of simplified that a little bit, but like the larger scheme of things is like, and, and this is just my opinion. So like, you know, but the larger scheme of things becomes like, how can we make this person a part of a system that we are in control of? And I think that I like me personally, because I'm so resilient, because I am intelligent and I have great parents who raised me to be a good human being. I didn't turn that way. And, um, so I've always like, I'm a creative person. I regard, like while I was playing sports, I was in art classes. I was in, um, all state choir. I was in all of these extracurricular activities outside of sports. So, um, I began making music. I began, um, like making clothes. I began doing all this like little stuff that I could do to like be self-sufficient and like rather I sell three items a week, like that's going to pay for something else, you know? So I just began doing little things that I could do. But the reality of it is, is like, I, was in poverty like i mean i'm not out of it i guess but like back then like i can honestly say that like 
I was living a lifestyle that like literally could have any day ended up ended up with me being homeless. Do you and, do you think this huge importance to be self-sufficient can be a detriment? That to a de- it's like a drug, a small amount might cure a disease, but you can overdose on a drug and it can harm you. If you're so self-sufficient, and I'm not just saying you, uh, but but also considering um, that maybe culturally this is common, if you can't ask for help, if you can't accept help, if you can't admit your weaknesses, if you can't acknowledge your defeats and and your inadequacies, you can't leverage the incredible advantage of a social supportive network that will help you. And it's hard to get ahead on your own. Now, fundamental to Americanism is this idea of self-sufficiency, autonomy, the rights of the individual. But when we focus on, on any given individual, that doesn't imply isolating themselves from social support that should exist, that can exist all around them. You know, I I was really struck when you were talking about your relationship with your brother when you were 11 years old, and he was teaching you martial arts, teaching you to be strong, teaching you to be able to take care of yourself. But there is a point where that self-sufficiency becomes a weakness, that becomes a self-imposed disadvantage. Does does that sound right very, to you? Do you think that's true? It's so crazy because over that next year, my parents became my best friends. And uh, I started to understand them more. They started to understand me more. Um, I was able to now open up to them and talk to them and like, if I was going through something, if I felt like I didn't want to be alive, these are the people that I'm going to tell. So, and, and I will say to anybody who is in that space or ever gets to that space because we do not control it. Um, always tell somebody because the first step is making it not real. And when you don't tell anybody, you just keep it in your head. It's a real thought and you will, it's easier to almost follow through with it. But once you say it out loud and you tell someone, it becomes like less real. So like for anybody who deals with those thoughts, like I, I am one of those people who has strongly dealt with those thoughts. There are many days where I didn't know if I'd make it to the next day. And um, you can make it to the next day. And there is somebody out there who wants to help you or wants to listen. And so to add to your point, yes, self-sufficiency can become a, a, a weakness and Achilles heel almost because like, well said, yeah. I, as much as like, even my brother, like I wouldn't let him help me. <laughs> like even him, like the person that loves me, I know he will give me anything that he could like, I don't want that from him either. He's got kids. He's so like, how common, how prevalent is this within black culture in Kentucky is it, or anywhere else that man, you can speak about? I would, 
I, I can't speak for everywhere else, but I'm glad you asked in Kentucky because in Kentucky, it is a different environment. And we are actually, for the most part, like taught to work. Like we don't see, we don't see millionaires, you know, like don't get me wrong. Bowling Green, Kentucky is a great city. It's, you know, four top 10 places to retire, but even a millionaire in Bowling Green, you're not going to know that's a millionaire. So everybody is living these, you know, normal lives. Nobody is in a Bentley or Rolls Royce. Nobody is, you know, go. And then even if they do live in a mansion, well, a mansion here costs $400,000 to a million, you know what I'm saying? So mm-hmm. it's like, it's everyone is taught to work and you're kind of taught to like, n- do not depend on the government. Do not depend. And like, these are like, I guess now that I'm older, like conservative views to a certain extent. But um, also, you know, Martin Luther King believed in a lot of that. And Malcolm X believed in a lot of that. And like, so I agree with you that self-sufficiency is great. And I think that every American should practice that to a certain extent. But then there comes a time where even Elon Musk, may may need to ask Kanye a question about the black community because he doesn't know. He's never experienced what it's like to live in America as a black person. Or he may need to ask the black community a question. But just because he doesn't know doesn't mean he doesn't want to help. And just because he's asking the question doesn't mean he's trying to offend us. And, like, that's another thing. We, me personally, and I think a lot of men in general, but especially black men, that is where um, intimidation comes from is the fact that we are defensive. But playing defense and playing offense are two different things. And so we are defensive because everything in history says we are going to have to defend ourselves in order to keep whatever we have. And now we're getting smart enough to know how to defend ourselves legally. We're getting smart enough to know how to defend ourselves in a courtroom. But of course we're going to play defense. Of course we're going to be defensive because I'm already less than you. And in, in, so, and that's how I grew up. Like I grew up in a very, um, at a time where like, it's not that they want you to fail or like these people want you to lose, but becoming more than them may be an issue. And even in America, like, you know, we're actually underpopulated and that's what they don't tell us. And they don't even tell us that to support the arguments of, you know, why they just done what they did, like, which, you know, is horrible, but like, regardless, like, they don't tell us that we're underpopulated. They don't tell us these things because, and, and this is my personal opinion, but like, I truly, I truly, truly believe that, you know, um, Edgar um, Allen Hoover, which was like, you know, the FBI director at one point, he said like, he feared that one day black men would do unto them as they had done unto black men. And, he always had a fear of becoming the minority. Um, Margaret Sanger, 
she had a fear of becoming the minority. If, and Margaret Sanger, I mean, I'm sure you know, but for the people who don't know, she's the lady who started Planned Parenthood. But like, maybe the intentions weren't for the same reasons that Planned Parenthood is here today. So um, I, I truly believe that there is a fear of becoming the minority to, to certain people and to certain things, but it's very scary when it comes to the health system and the medical system because how many black babies die accidentally on purpose? How many, how many women become infertile accidentally on purpose? How many black young men like me who are smart, who, who have everything in them to maybe change the world one day or change the way somebody views something, how many of these die? before they ever get a voice. So I think it is very important that like, you know, we, that I, that I speak for, for my people in that aspect of, if you ever wanted to know why we're defensive so fast, it's because everything in history tells us that we are gonna have to defend whatever it is that we have to keep, especially our life. So, um, to, to get, to go, to go back to the story though, and to get to where you were, um, you know, trying to get to, um, I get on disability and, um, life kind of becomes worse. Like not, um, I'm getting better. My spirit is coming back to a certain extent. I'm starting to do extracurricular activities that really I'm hurting myself. Like I'm BMXing, like I'm riding a bicycle at the skate park every day. I'm hurting myself all the time, but like, this is how I'm getting through this. Like, and so, um, there'd be times where like, I get really, really sick, but I'm at this apartment by myself. So it became like, damn, like my parents don't have to see this. Therefore they don't have to deal with it. Meaning like they don't have to know the reality of how bad this actually is. And maybe that is why they couldn't be in the same house as me. So I'm starting to battle these things. And, um, you know, if I, if I get really, really, really sick, like I'm having, I'm going to have to call the ambulance. I think the ambulance came there like four times and, you know, ambulance are not cheap, uh, regardless if you have insurance or not, ambulance are not cheap. So, you know, it got to the point to where I'm just like, oh, like may, maybe I'm better off as life insurance than I am as a life. That's what I'm literally telling myself. So like my parents will be happy. My sister will be taken care of. My brother will be taken care of my nieces, my nephews. So I'm telling myself this and mind you, I'm saying all this to say also while I say this, that mental illness only contributes to whatever illness it is that you do have. So if you're sick already, the last thing I want you to do or you should do is beat yourself up. Like you have to have some kind of grace for yourself because I was beating myself up. I'm telling myself all of these negative things and like self-talk is so important because this is how your body knows to start healing. Your body doesn't know to start healing when you're convincing yourself that you're sick because now every being, every part of you is sick. My mind's sick. I know my mind's sick because I'm going on an eight-mile walk. 
my my body's sick. I know my body's sick because I have a colostomy bag to prove it. My joints are bad. I know my joints are bad because I cannot, I can't do everything that I was doing before. Like all of these things are like playing on me. But really what I should have been telling myself is like, I'm getting closer. And like self-talk is so important. And and, and I just want to like say that I'm saying all of like the reason I'm I'm also giving all these stories is because I want to, I want to show how deep you can be, you can get inside of depression to where you are convincing your body that it can't heal. And the one thing that you do have is your mind. So like, if you, as long as you have consciousness over it, you are blessed and you have to tell yourself that you will get better. You have to tell yourself that you are going to get through it. And that's not just resiliency and that's just not self-sufficiency. That's positive self-talk. And you have to have positive self-talk because telling yourself anything negative reflects your gut, reflects on your gut, reflects on your liver, reflects on your organs. So like, and you will literally see a difference as you start to like improve the way that you view yourself. So, um, but this was one of those days where I'm sick in an apartment by myself. And, um, I call my parents my dad actually rushes over this day. He comes and gets me and uh, he takes me to the hospital and I'm sitting in the ER and like, I let them know, like I can have a preparation. I don't know what's going on, but I just know that I haven't had output in, I think it had been um, 18 hours at that point in time. I hadn't had um, any output. I'm, I'm getting scared. My stomach feels locked up. It's hurting. Like I'm in excruciating pain. Um, and uh, so I get back there and like, there's this nurse who I guess she had been there all day. I don't know what that's, that's the thing too. Like you never know who you're going to run into. So like you have to just make sure your energy is right. Because like, even for me, like, like I have been in so so many situations unto which like I'm dealing with the doctor's ego. I'm dealing with the doctor's feelings because they have emotions in this too, regardless of how cold they seem. And if they're failing at helping someone, then that reflects on them. And like that's a, that's um a case that they don't get to write positively about. That's something that isn't the best thing on their resume. So like you got to understand that these people are humans too. And I'm dealing with a lot of doctors egos. I'm dealing cause nobody knows what's wrong with me to be honest. And at this point they don't even know, like it got to the, um, I'm going to tell this story. Um, and then I'm going to go back and, and tell an important story because, uh, actually I need to tell, um, two, two weeks out of the hospital after I had, um, went to jail, got out the next day, got an apartment. Um, I have to go back to Vanderbilt for my first GI appointment. And I'm now at the adult hospital and not the children's hospital. I'm 21 years old. Um, I have a brand new doctor who I've never met before in my life, not even while I was in the hospital. I've never met this person. She doesn't know my case. She doesn't know how 
long I have been at Vanderbilt or how much I've been through, and she doesn't know what I have been through in the last week. So when she comes in, she presents two different medications. And at the time, both of these medications, like, presented um, serious risk of infertility. And for most of her patients, her saying this is not a big deal because most of her patients are 35 and up, 35 and over, which means they probably already had kids that. So she's saying this to a 21 year old who literally thinks he's just lost everything. So if you say I can't have kids, I have no reason to live, but she does not know that I'm in this space. She does not know that I am this mentally not okay. Um, so she presents the information, how she presents it. It wasn't the best way. Um, my reaction isn't the best. Um, me and her have a very intelligent argument and it, but I will admit that like, um, the argument was intelligent until I basically brought up the fact that like she worked for her patients and she does not get paid unless she has patients. And if like, so I, I feel as though like now that I'm more mature and I'm out of it and I'm not in that mental space anymore, I can honestly say that like, I disrespected her profession in that sense because, like, even though, yes, that's a fact, like, that's not really something that you say. Um, so, um, but either way, I was removed from Vanderbilt's GI department. What do you mean, removed? Um, I was red listed. So, they fired, no one, they fired you as a patient. Yes. Okay. So, no one in the GI department would see me. Because um, and, of the interaction you had had with this one doctor, which was unpleasant, they excluded you from services for all of the GI. Yeah, like, so, but my surgeon, which he's a great man to this day, I love him. Like, I love him like family. Um, he done both of my surgeries. Um, he refused to stop seeing me because, like, he knew I was a good kid. He knew... I had just went through a lot. He knew that like something had to be going on. if like I was being disrespectful because I'm always respectful to him. So he refuses to stop seeing me. Well, through him refusing to stop seeing me, he basically goes to the board or whatever about it. And my, my urologist, yeah, urologist. And then my eye doctor, they both decide that they're going to continue to see me in Vanderbilt also, but the GI department can't, like, even if they wanted to send me to another doctor, that doctor has to approve that she's okay with me coming back to their I practice. Yeah. So she wouldn't, which is crazy because I'm 21 years old. I am sick. I need help. Like, I'm sorry I disrespected you or you felt disrespected, but, like, I didn't curse you out. I didn't threaten to harm you. Like, we were having an intelligent conversation, and my intelligence and your intelligence butted heads. So... Like, I don't think that that was something to necessarily be removed completely from a, a a practice for. But either way, that's just that just goes to this next point of 
I go 10 months with this elosomy with no GI doc. So I'm not on any medication for my Crohn's basically the whole time I have the elosomy. Like they had me on pain medicine at the beginning of when I first came home, obviously, but they didn't put me on any Crohn's disease medicine or anything that was going to make my Crohn's dormant or anything like that because I didn't have a GI doctor. So um, I'm looking for GI doctors, like literally uh, every GI doctor in Bowling Green, like respectfully, but like they, they basically said that like my case was too severe. And like, if anything happened, they wouldn't be able to do anything to help me. So like they didn't want to be put in that position, but like they all like they, and I can honestly say they all like, if I like needed something like, cause I would run out of like colostomy supplies and stuff like that. They would all help me. So, so I knew that it wasn't like they, like they were just being honest with me to save my life really. Um, so fast forward, I um, start seeing a GI doctor in Louisville. I get on medicine 10 months later. Um, but, um, I'm living alone. I'm having, I have a flare up. My dad comes, he takes me to the hospital. I'm in the ER. Um, I let them know that I don't know what's going on, but like, I'm in a lot of pain. This nurse, I guess she's not having a very good day. She is rude to me and my dad. Um, which somebody could have literally just called her a name right before she walked in my room. So like, who knows like why she was, you know, but so I don't want to just put it on her, but either way, I politely like ask um, for a new nurse <laughs> because I'm paying to be here. <laughs> like, like, pe- like I know that that is like taboo to say, but like I am literally paying to be here. So like I could at least be treated right. Yeah, it's so I- it's okay to ask for a new nurse. So it might not have been okay for you to ask for a new nurse. Yes. So I, and that was the thing. So, um, the head nurse, she like, um, I approached her and asked for a new nurse out in the hallway. (laughs) So like, let me be, let me put it all in context. I approach her at like the desk and I asked for, I'm like, who's the head nurse? could I have a new nurse in this room? Because me and this nurse are not going to get along. I'm in far too much pain to be arguing and like having to defend myself right now. And I, that's literally what I say, because like every time I go to the hospital, it's like I'm defending myself and I'm having to argue to get them to believe me before they just do a CT scan and look inside and, and be like, Oh, he's sick. He's right. Like, so, or he has a blockage. So, um, I asked for a new nurse the head nurse acts like she's going to send the new nurse, but instead sends hospital security. Oh my God. So he is actually like, um, he actually was a resource officer at my mom's school. She was, that she was a principal at. So he actually is super nice, super understanding. And, uh, he's talking to me. He's like, man, the reality of it is, is like, we don't know what on like what day we're going to catch people and what move we're going to catch them in, but you need help. Like you need to be seen. So like, let's like, literally he's just telling me like, let's worry about that. And I'm telling him that if I'm going to like, mind you, I'm mentally not there. So like, I'm telling him like, and I'm in so much pain. So 
people forget that like once a human is in pain, their thinking ability becomes different. No question. <laughs> so like I'm never thinking clearly when I'm in this much pain, but like I still have to make life altering decisions. So um, I'm telling him I'd rather die in my bed than die in a hospital where y'all could have helped. Or I'd rather, like, and Bobby's saying that, though, like, my mom was, like, coming home from work, and she was going to, like, pick me up and then take me to Vanderbilt. So, like, I'm like, I just need to get out of here, right? So they had already put an IV in me. And I'm just going to leave with the IV because in my head, I'm about to go to I'm about to go to go Vanderbilt. They won't have to put another IV in me. Granted, I know that that is not, like, <laughs> I see the know, logic, but. Yeah, it's yeah. not right, you know. <laughs> But I'm just like, I mean, so the security guard, he's walking with me and like, he's like, he's trying to convince me to come back, but he also is being calm. He's like, if you want to leave, like you have every right to leave. I just don't think you should. So he's walking with me to the door and all of a sudden two nurses, like basically they rush me and they're like, we have to get that IV out. And they try to push me on a bed that's in the, um, the middle, like in the hallway. And so. It physically restrained um, you. Well, not at first, because at first, like, I pushed this one back and I pushed this one back and the security guard asked him what was going on because he wasn't doing anything. So he's like, why are you guys touching him? Like, because you could have easily walked up to me and asked me to have him sit down and so you guys could take it out. So he kind of, like, tries to bring order to it at first. Mm -hmm. And so they don't care about that they like rush me again. And then that's when they're trying to like pin me down on the bed, but like, I'm just simply not going. And so they end up like what I push one of the nurse, uh, one of the, mind you, these are male nurses, not female nurses. I push one of the nurses and, uh, he falls into the security guard. The security guard's an older man. And, uh, the security guard falls. There's a cop in the hallway that is walking out of a room. They say, we need help. We need help. Well, there's three white men fighting. Well, three white men down basically because the security guard never once tried to restrain me. And he put, he put that on record. But, um, of course, um, what does the cop do? They're going to come help. Sorry, but the white people. So I am, and I'm, and I'm being aggressive at this point. So, but it's like, I'm literally not trying to harm anybody. I'm just not trying to let anybody like touch me. So like, because I would have easily sat down and let them take the IV out, but them like touching me is like, and trying to grab me and restrain me is like far beyond the lines of their job. So the cop, um, she tells me to get on the ground. Well, as soon as she says, get on the ground, I don't want to be resisting arrest. So I turned around on my stomach. Well, when I turn around on my stomach, the one nurse puts his knee in my neck and my back. The other nurse like sits on both of my legs and puts basically his knees in my knees. And like, mind you, I have rheumatoid arthritis. I've had surgery on both of my knees. I've had surgery on my spine. So like, this is not okay. And, but I'm not telling them in this moment, like I've had surgery, get off me. Cause like, why would I tell you my weakness so you could hurt me more? Your intentions clearly are not not are not good. So the cop, she she stands me up, she sits me on the bed that they have been trying to get me on. 
She allows them to take out the IV and then she unhandcuffs me. And I'm everyone now, mind you, like everyone who has seen this, because there are people recording it with their phones who are getting yelled at. Um, my phone disappeared because I'm on I'm on FaceTime trying to like I'm on I like call I I call um I call real like fast. I call my friend real fast and I try to get on FaceTime and get them to like get everybody involved basically like not like as far as like come up here and beat people up like no call the police like like get on facebook right now like get on live because i have had another situation happen with the police in bowling green where that actually saved me so like um so i called my phone disappeared so like i'm sitting on this bed i'm unhandcuffed i'm net like you know if they handcuff usually you're going to jail buddy so um I'm unhandcuffed, and uh, I asked her, I'm like, so am I free to go? And she's like, yeah, like, if you, if they don't have to uh, give you any discharge papers, you haven't committed any crimes. I said, oh, then I'm going to call my lawyer, and I'm staying right here. And this is when they um, banned me from the hospital. Basically, they put, like, um, what do you call it? Basically, they make the police, like, remove me from the hot from the hospital grounds but i don't have my phone and i'm asking where's my phone where's my phone the cop has to go find one of the nurses that was like wrestling with me he has my phone in his pocket in another patient's room which is breaking so many like so the i'm making a big deal about this like i, I call my lawyer instantly like i'm making a big deal about this like at this point i'm not even worried about like the, this blockage like i'm not even worried about the blockage like pain is, is is something that i can get through so um my lawyer he calls the um he calls like uh and says he wants like the report and he wants the video and then the sergeant calls me later that day and he like agrees that like he watched the body cam footage what these nurses done was un like unconstitutional it was not right they had no they had no authority blah 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 blah. and then like that monday because that happened on a friday that monday I, me and my lawyer were supposed to be getting the footage and that's when they told us that like it had been misplaced misplaced so, of course it was right unbelievable so, unbelievable story unbelievable story and you know being able to tell this story over more than two hours now is absolutely critical because every minute from your childhood through your adolescence and teenage, young adult years up to as recently as this event in the hospital is a, a daisy chain of events that lets you understand the way it affected you, the way you reacted in that moment. And if you don't know somebody, you can't connect all those dots together. You know? And, and, yes. um, and so I, I hope that this has allowed people an opportunity to know Marcus in a way that allows them to practice their God-given gift of compassion and empathy. Like, can you see how foreign this is to you, perhaps? Not to you, but to a member of the audience that 
that this is not something you've ever experienced that you probably ever will experience, but do you see how it happened? Can you connect all the dots in a way that says, this is so deeply rooted. This is not just bad health care, right? This is much deeper than that. The final consequence was bad health care. But so much contributed to this um, along the way that um, it, it, it may not allow you to understand a solution, but maybe the solution will come from a moment of compassion. Maybe it'll come from sympathy, if not empathy, for what you experienced, right? Seeing you as the sensitive, smart, beautiful, intelligent human being you are, not just seeing you at 1159. You see, it takes time, though. It took us over two hours to tell this story. But I think if the listener can be generous with their time and assimilate everything that you've told us today, they have an opportunity to be a better person. And that in and of itself doesn't solve anything, but it might allow the solution to surface if, if enough people do the same. And so I just want to tell you again how grateful I am and how much I, I enjoy it. Really to that point, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but basically what you just said was like, spread more love, be more love, because you never know like who literally needs a smile, like who literally needs a pat on the back or who literally needs a stranger to wave at them to get them out of the headspace that they're in. So be love and like, I think that if I've learned anything through all of this and everything I've been through and like, yes, I could be angry. Yes, I could be mad, but like, I just want to be love and I want to be able to accept love and I want to be able to give love to the people who need it the most. And sometimes love is literally just an ear. Um, Sometimes love is literally just like letting someone tell you what it is that is making them feel the way that they are feeling. So like if we can all do anything to make this world a better place, it is to spread more love and to act like it is so cliche, but to be kind because like there are so many days where like someone being kind to me literally split my whole day around and it like, like now I like, I'm to the point in, I'm to the place in my healing to where I'll even get emotional. Like, because I'm like, wow, like this person cared enough to go out of their way. And like, I, I remember I used to never allow myself to cry. And now I cry happy tears all the time. And I'm just become, I'm finding this new joy and I'm finding this new life even. And I thank you for allowing me to share what got me to this point, because although like I do, like I am, I like, I, I believe I am very intelligent for my age and what I've been through, but like it took a lot to get here and it took a lot of pain to get to this point. And 
I thank you for allowing me to be humanized on your platform because if people only know one part of my story, I could be their villain. Right. And, and so I thank you because I'm not alone in this. There are so many people who I'm not going to say they're victims because I'm not a victim, but there are so many people who have these traumatizing, traumatizing events that lead up to 1159, as you would say. And I don't think it's right that these people get dehumanized before they're ever humanized, even even when someone is a victim. Yeah. Um, you know, like with, with like the George Floyd situation, like, you know, like even when someone is a victim, we're still talking about how he shouldn't have done this or he should have done this. And like, you have to understand and realize like the way that someone reacts to trauma isn't always their decision. Isn't that true? And, uh, isn't that true? And I think that, you know, you said that so beautifully and we didn't know George Floyd's first 59 minutes, right? We just saw the last minute and, um, and, and we need to, I, I think make space for that. I don't, I don't think I can uh, say anything that will improve the message other than thank you, and I hope we get to maintain a relationship. I'd, I'd like to continue to um, talk to you. Um, and a, uh, if there's anything you need, I hope you reach out to me. Um, this has been a real privilege. And, um, and so um, until I talk to you again, blessings, thank you. I am so grateful that you did this today. This has been Life Before Medicine. I appreciate your time. I hope you got as much out of that as I did. We'll be in touch soon.